this is the second week of uh, hot topics, difficult topics that are very much a part of our lives that I think it's important for us to talk through, to wrestle through. And we're this morning we're talking on the topic of abortion, which is a very, uh, very important, very emotional, very personal topic. Um, and so as we were preparing for this, the Lord opened the doors for me to invite a long-term friend of mine, Scott Klusendorf, to come speak to us. I could speak on the topic, but not with the authority and the experience that Scott brings. Scott is the president of Life Training Institute. He's written a book called The Case for Life, which will be out in the foyer afterwards. Um, Scott and I met back in 1984 on a mission trip to England. And so we have a, what, a 35-year friendship, kept in touch, followed different directions in the ministry. And I appreciate his passion to speak for those who cannot speak, to defend the life of the unborn, but to do it with grace and compassion and kindness. And so it's my great privilege to welcome to the City Hill pulpit Scott Klusendorf. Scott, come on up. Let's say a word of prayer for you. Father, I thank you for my friend Scott. I thank you, God, for your hand upon his life. Thank you for his wife, Stephanie, Lord. We thank you that they could be with us this morning. And Father, I pray that you, through Scott, would speak to us. That, Father, we'd hear and understand things in a new light from your word. And the Father, we each would be part of the answer here in this world. Thank you for Scott. We open our hearts to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, brother. It is great to be back in Minnesota. The last time I was here, it was spring, and I enjoyed all 48 hours of your spring. It was lovely. It is a privilege to be here. You are well-led as a church. And I'm here to tell you, having known Kent and Janet for 35 years, you are led by gifted and principled people, and I thank God you have them as your pastors. You are blessed indeed. Yeah, you, absolutely. If you would open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, we're going to be looking at a very well-known parable but we might be surprised on a few of the turns it takes. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, meaning Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, 
leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, when he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took him to denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, said Jesus to the lawyer, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. For any of you that are on social media and you've ever been involved in a discussion with someone or shall we say a flame out with someone where you were arguing. Now, I know most of you are far too righteous to ever do that. But if you have ever done that and you used a term incorrectly, you will immediately be confronted by a meme from the movie The Princess Bride. Anigo Montoya is going to appear in picture form and you will read these words. You keep using that word, but I don't think you know what it really means. How many of you know the meme I'm talking about? Don't raise your hand if it's been used against you. But we're looking at a parable today that almost everybody thinks they get. Even non-Christians think they understand this. If you talk to somebody on the political left, they will tell you that this parable is about government redistributing wealth. It's about government programs, welfare, and how Christians ought to line up with that. If you talk to somebody on the political right, they'll tell you this is about how private citizens should show more compassions to their neighbor. If you talk to a general conservative Christian believer, they'll say, well, this has to do with how we as believers ought to show more love, more compassion to our neighbors, and that's what this is about. But in reality, there's far more going on in this parable than you might imagine. Look at what the context is. The lawyer comes to Jesus and asks the most important question you can ever ask in life. He gets the question exactly right. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what have I got to do to go to heaven? Is there any more important question than that? No, that is it. That, that's where it all comes down. And Jesus gives an absolutely chilling answer. Now think about this for a moment. If somebody came to you and said, hey, I'm interested in this Jesus you follow. I'm interested in eternal life. What do I have to do to get that? Well, you and I would immediately share the gospel, as we should. But notice Jesus doesn't do that. He does something else. He says to the man, what's written in the law, meaning the law of Moses? And the lawyer, who by the way is not a secular lawyer, he's a Jewish law lawyer, meaning 
He is a theologian and a precise theologian whose job it is to make sure nobody messes up theologically. That's his job. Well, he answers absolutely correct. He says, well, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says these words. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now that should, for us, send a shudder up our spines. Keep the law perfectly is the translation here. And Jesus says if you do that, you'll live. But the lawyer still doesn't get it. He's still not tracking with what's really going on here. And even though he summed up the law, he doesn't get the real equation that's confronting him. And then we find out why Jesus told this guy to go to the law. Next verse, the man was self-righteous. He was seeking to justify himself, it says. And Jesus, when the man says, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus then responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan where he totally flips the narrative on the guy. The guy says, well, who is my neighbor? Kind of in a snarky, sarcastic way. And Jesus flips it to this question, are you a good neighbor? And then he tells the story of the Good Samaritan to illustrate what it means to love your neighbor according to the law of God. And look what Jesus says, because here's where it gets real. In verses 33 to 37, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Flawless self-sacrifice. Not once, every time. Flawless. No impure motive. No giving that we might give. Flawless. It, goes, it gets even better. Or worse, if you understand it. Flawless love for someone who hates you. Remember, Jews hate Samaritans. Flawless, unlimited financial sacrifice for a complete stranger. Flawless giving of one's time, even if it means completely rewriting your agenda to go out of your way to take care of the stranger's need. Flawless giving financially. It means this. You take your AMX, your American Express card, and you rack it up. You max that thing out to care for this guy. And when he maxes that card out, you give him your Visa card, and that one gets maxed out too. And you keep going. That's what Jesus is saying here. Nothing else is acceptable to the law of God. Now let me ask a question. Who loves their neighbor like that. I don't even love my spouse that way. <laughs> I don't love my kids that way. Do you? This lawyer should have fallen on his knees and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But instead, he seeks to justify himself. And that's why Jesus took him to the law. We have a real conundrum. The Bible says without righteousness, no one gets into the kingdom of God. It then says 
they're an unrighteous. The answer to that conundrum is to recognize that in this room today, there is no one who can live up to what this law demands. No one. The best pro-life advocate you know has failed to love his unborn neighbor according to this standard. Mother Teresa failed the test. I fail the test. The local crisis pregnancy center director fails the test. All of us do. And this is a devastating moment for us right now to just pause before we go any further. Because I know there's people who think, you know, when it comes to abortion, what we really need to do is just smack it to those people who have had abortions, who have promoted abortions. We need to make sure they really understand just how bad they really are. You know what this parable says? We've all failed the test. Every single one of us has failed to love not only our unborn neighbor, but any neighbor, according to the way the law of God demands. Which is why, this morning, we are approaching this topic not with a heavy hand of self-righteousness, but a healthy recognition that every one of us in this room has not lived up to what the law of God demands when it comes to loving our neighbor. And there's but one fix for our problem that, we, that God requires righteousness and we don't have it. And the fix for that is the glorious truth found in Romans chapter 3, verses 21, or 20 to 21, where Paul says this, after making it clear in the first two and a half chapters of Romans that nobody lives righteously. The Jews claim to have righteousness, but they don't live up to it. The Gentiles, they live according to their law. They're lost. Jews are lost. Everybody's lost, Paul says. And then he says this, but now. Oh, by the way, those are my two favorite words in all of Scripture. But now, a righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to us, to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus, in Christ, for all who believe. Translation, you and I need an alien righteousness. Now, don't let that term throw you. Paul is not talking about a, a horror movie, you know, with aliens in space and Sigourney Weaver coming out, uh, walking around. Uh, that's not what he's talking about. What we're talking about here is you and I don't have what's inside of us that's needed to make ourselves right with God. And God himself, knowing that, provides a righteousness through his son who stood in our place and bore the judgment of God each of us deserves so that those who trust in that righteousness are covered in the righteousness of Christ. And God now judges them based on Christ's righteousness, not their own. In other words, it's a gift of righteousness. And when the Bible speaks of righteousness, it never means that we're made righteous in this life. As if somehow we're morally reformed and we become good enough on our own to please God. The idea here in scripture is that God declares us righteous. Unworthy though we are, he declares us righteous 
in virtue of Jesus. In other words, as Romans 4, 5 says, God is in the business of justifying the ungodly. That is an amazing truth. And this lawyer in this parable doesn't get it. So what does this mean for us? If you're here today and you've had an abortion, the fact that God is in the business of justifying the ungodly is a game changer for you. Because you know what it means? You don't engage in pro-life work to earn God's favor. You engage in pro-life work because you have God's favor. Because of what Jesus did for you, standing in your place, bearing the judgment of sin, your sin and mine for not loving our unborn neighbor or any neighbor. And the answer to our unrighteousness is our substitute who stood in our place. Listen, if you've had an experience with abortion this morning, you know why this church isn't here to condemn you? You know why I'm not here to condemn you? It is because we recognize that were it not for Jesus standing in our place, all of us would be lost. That's why we're not here to condemn you. So as we approach what else is in this parable, we do so from the context that all of us in this room have failed the test of God's law and we stand in a state of right relationship with Jesus because of what he did for us and nothing else. That is it. All of this is amazing news, but we'll never appreciate it if we don't first see ourselves in this parable. So what can this parable teach us about a difficult topic like abortion? Well, the first thing we can look at is that the parable can teach us that we need to repent for justifying ourselves. Look what it says in verse 29. But he, meaning the lawyer, seeking to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? By the way, this shouldn't surprise us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the human heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's desperately sick, the prophet says. It is deceived above all things. You know what that means? I don't even understand the depths of deception of my own heart any more than you understand yours. And the prophet is telling us our hearts are desperately deceived. And as a result, we live in a self-deceiving, self-justifying culture. One of the best-selling books right now, Justifying Abortion, is a book called Pro by Katha Pollitt. And in her book, Pro, which is an attempt to champion abortion, Katha Pollitt says these words, stop apologizing for abortion. Promote it. Champion it. Celebrate it. Don't feel ashamed about it. Vacuuming out your house, these are her exact words, vacuuming out your house and vacuuming out your uterus are identical. Neither one is a problem. Don't apologize anymore. There's a campaign on YouTube, many of you students may have seen it, called Shout Your Abortion, where you're supposed to wear a t-shirt if you had an abortion and shout it out to the world with pride that you have had one and you don't apologize for it. There are even people today arguing that the Bible 
promotes abortion. There is an organization called the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice that says that because the Bible nowhere mentions the word abortion, we shouldn't condemn it. And because the Bible allegedly nowhere says thou shalt not have an abortion, it's fine. Question for you. Why in the world would anybody believe that because the Bible doesn't expressly condemn something, it condones it? Does anywhere in scripture say thou shalt not use neighbor for shark bait? Is that permissible? And yet, millions of people are being deceived with appeals to scripture. I witnessed a jaw-dropping event in February. My friend Mike Adams, who's a sociology criminology professor at the University of North Carolina, debated abortionist Willie Parker. Willie Parker calls himself the, quote, Christian, unquote, abortionist. He describes himself as a good Samaritan to women in need, and that by aborting these women, he is acting as a good Samaritan, and he goes so far as to say he is a Christ-like figure to women in need. Men and women, Willie Parker is not a good Samaritan. You know what Willie Parker is? He's a substitute savior. And substitute saviors can't save us. Only Jesus can. Willie Parker is justifying himself like this lawyer in the parable. Like millions we know who won't acknowledge where they truly are. Second thing we need to do, we need to repent for not recognizing our unborn neighbor. Look at verse 29, the second part of that. The lawyer says, well, who is my neighbor? Well, okay, let's indulge the lawyer for a moment. Is the unborn my neighbor? The answer is yes, if he's a human being. And you know what, men and women? You and I need to be equipped to convey that truth to people out there who don't understand it. Let me give you a very short way to demonstrate the unborn is our neighbor and that our duties to our neighbors in general would apply to the unborn as well. Here's the simple, clear, unequivocal teaching of the science of embryology. From the earliest stages of development, from the one cell stage, each of you was a distinct, living, and whole human being. In fact, hold your hand out for a moment, if you would, and I want you to give yourself a good pinch. No, this isn't an attempt to wake you up uh, as the caffeine is wearing off. There's a purpose in this. Give yourself a good pinch. Okay, congratulations. You just sent a couple of hundred somatic cells hurling to their deaths on the Bible in front of you. The, the news gets worse. Every one of those cells contains your entire DNA encoding. Did you just commit mass homicide? No, and you know why. These cells on the back of your hand are merely part of a larger human entity, you. They are not distinct whole human beings the way you were when you were an embryo, the way I was when I was an embryo. There's a difference in kind between cells that are merely part of a larger human entity 
and you as an embryo that was already a distinct living and whole human being. That's the science of embryology. Now, some people will say, well, okay, fine. The unborn are scientifically and biologically alive, but they're not persons with rights because they're not developed enough. They're different from us. Those embryos are different from us. Yes, they are, but that's not the question. The question is, did you, the embryo, differ from you, the adult, in ways that would justify killing you back then? And there's four differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, none of which are good reasons for saying we could kill you back then, but we can kill you now. There's a difference of size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. You can use the acronym SLED to remember these four differences, size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency. None of them are good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. Size, there's your S. You were smaller as an embryo, so how does body size determine value? Men are generally larger than women. We don't think men deserve more rights because they're bigger. What about your level of development? You were less developed as an embryo, so two-year-old girls are less developed than 21-year-old young women. Two-year-old girls do not have a developed reproductive system yet. Are they less human and valuable than a 21-year-old who does? I speak to lots of high school students. I'll be speaking to about a thousand of them in uh, two days in Alabama. Last week in Jacksonville, Florida, I spoke to about 850 of them. And I said to those students as they gathered into the bleachers and I spoke to them, I said, you are less developed than your parents. You are less developed than your parents physically and you're less developed than your parents intellectually, which came as a complete shock to the vast majority of them. But the reality is you don't reach your intellectual peak until your mid-40s. Does it follow your parents have a greater right to life than you simply because they're more developed? Size, level of development. What about environment where you're located? You're in the womb, now you're out. How does where you are determine what you are? If you drove at least seven miles to get to church, can I see your hands? Okay, this is a good church. People travel to it. 14 miles? 24 miles, whoa, uh, 34 miles, 44 miles, 54 miles, 1,004 miles, I win. Now, uh, now, if a journey, we'll go with Gary over here, it's Gary, right? 44 miles did not change him from one kind of thing to another. How does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you from non-human, non-valuable thing we can kill to valuable human being we can't? And the answer is, if you weren't already human and valuable, changing your address isn't going to get you there. And finally, degree of dependency. Sure, you depended on your mother for survival. So, how does dependency on a human being mean that we can intentionally kill you? There are children born, I don't know the exact percentages, but they're there, who can only tolerate their mother's milk. They can't tolerate formula. What would we think of a mother who gave birth to one of those children who depended totally on her for survival? And if the mother were to say, too bad, my body, my choice, he depends totally on me for survival, and she lets the child die from neglect, we would think that awful. Size level of development, environment, and degree of dependency 
are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. Now, biblically, it's not hard to understand why the Bible's pro-life. Even if the word doesn't appear in the Bible, even if the Bible nowhere specifically taught the unborn were human, I'll grant both those points. Not that they couldn't be argued, but I'll just grant them for the sake of discussion. Here's what the Bible teaches. All humans have value because they bear the image of God. Genesis 1 teaches this in the Old Covenant. James chapter 3 teaches it in the New. In fact, in James chapter 3, James tells us that gossip is an affront to God. Why? Gossip isn't innocent. It's not a little thing in God's mind. It's a big deal. And James tells us why. Because, in verse 9, when we gossip about somebody, we slander them. We're assaulting the very image of God in that person. We're attempting to tear it down. And James says, we can't do that. We can't do that. So in the Bible, all humans have value because they bear the image of God. The second thing scripture teaches is that because humans bear the image of God, the shedding of innocent blood is strictly forbidden. Exodus 23 teaches this. Proverbs 6 teaches this. Matthew 5 teaches this. What's the only question we need to answer? Are the unborn human? If they are human, the same commands against the shedding of innocent blood apply to the unborn as they do everybody else. And we already know from the science of embryology that they are one of us. Third thing we need to learn from this parable to avoid self-justification is we need to repent for refusing to see. Notice what it says in verses 31 to 32. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, meaning the beating victim, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Since 1973, the United States has been passing by on the other side of the road as regards the unborn. We don't want to see. We don't want to see. Last year, our organization, Life Training Institute, spoke to 72,000 students in Catholic and Protestant high schools and worldview conferences across the U.S. And we helped them see. We use a very short video clip that's 55 seconds long. It does not show an abortion procedure, but it does show the aftermath. And it's disturbing to look at. It's, in some sense, gruesome imagery to have to take in. And in just a moment, I'm going to show you that clip. But I, before I do, I want you to know that watching it is totally up to you. In fact, I will tell you exactly what you'll see if you do watch, and then you can make a decision to avert your gaze if you wish not to watch what I'm about to show you. This clip, though disturbing, has no narration. We will not describe for you what's on the screen, meaning if you wish to look away, you can look away and you can avoid its contents entirely. If you watch, here's what you'll see. In the 55 seconds, you'll see a first, second, and third trimester fetus that has undergone abortion. Before we run this, I also want to say if there are any children in the room under the age of seventh grade, parents, it's my considered opinion they should not see this clip, so would you put your arm around your child and ask them to look down during the 55 seconds 
as a courtesy to them. Or if you want, we have another provision that uh, we can do right here. My wife Stephanie is right here. And of course she's seated right here next to uh, Janet Norell. Would you two ladies wave at us? They are both going to make their way to the exit doors right now. And if you would like your children to actually leave the room for this brief 55 seconds, you can send them back to the exit sign and Stephanie and Janet will take good care of them for a couple of minutes while we're together. And as soon as the clip ends, they'll come right back in. So parents, if you want to avail yourself of that, they're right there. Janet, wave at us so they know where to go. And your kids can go right now and be with them. And they'll be brought right back in. By the way, the kids always like to get out of church early. So this is not a problem for them. One more thing. We've already stressed the incredible grace of God for those wounded by abortion. And I want you to know, men and women, we do not use this clip to beat people up who've had abortions. How many of you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ? Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, Hacksaw Ridge. You paid money to go watch absolutely gruesome imagery on the screen. And I know why you did it, for the same reason I did it. You understood that these images conveyed truths in a way no words ever could. And the same is true with abortion. There are millions of our fellow citizens who will keep justifying it and keep justifying their refusal to love their unborn neighbor until they see it. You know why? Because they've reduced abortion to a preference issue, like choosing chocolate ice cream over vanilla. And this clip reawakens people's moral intuitions about abortion. So again, if you wish not to watch, you feel the freedom to look away. We'll roll this clip, and then I have one more point to finish up with before we're done today. So at this point, we'll go ahead and we will roll this clip, and let's keep the good news of the gospel in mind as we watch this brief 55-second clip. Some of you might look at a clip like this and think, oh, do we have to, is it really necessary to show something that provocative to get our point across? And if that's how you feel, I'm sympathetic to you because I do not enjoy these images, but I understand their power. There has not been one social reform campaign for 150 years that was successful that did not use gruesome imagery to convey truths the culture wanted to ignore. And abortion is in that same category. 
1955, an African-American boy by the name of Emmett Till Jr., 14 years of age, journeyed from Chicago where he was living to the town of Money, Mississippi. And he got off the train in Money, Mississippi and began to brag to his two cousins about his white girlfriends back home in Chicago. And the cousin and the friends were like, no, there's no way. You do not have white girlfriends. We don't even speak to white women here, let alone date them. And when he persisted, they dared him to talk to a white girl down there. That afternoon, Emmett, the cousin and the friends went into Bryant's grocery store in downtown Money, Mississippi. And Emmett walked up to the counter where there was a white 21-year-old married woman. He purchased a piece of gum from her and very innocently but flirtatiously said to her, thanks, babe, and left. We think nothing of it. Innocent. Not then, not in Money, Mississippi in 1955 if you were black. Two nights later at gunpoint, the woman's husband and another man took that boy outside his uncle's home where he was staying drove him seven miles outside Money, Mississippi, savagely beat him for several hours, breaking nearly every bone in his upper torso until they finally shot him in the head and dumped his corpse into the river. A couple of boys fishing found him. The local sheriff came, presumably about three to four days later, they found him in the river. And the sheriff could not believe the sight of this kid he put what was left of Emmett in a box, not even a coffin, just a wooden box that he nailed shut with a note to Mamie Till, Emmett's mother, which read, don't open this, you won't like what you see. When Mamie Till got the body in Chicago several days later, the newspaper press gathered around her and said, what are you going to do, Mrs. Till? And she shocked the world with an announcement. She said, we're going to have a public funeral for my son, and it's going to be an open casket funeral. The press went berserk. You can't do this. You will upset people. They will be angry at you. Don't you realize the condition your boy is in? How disturbing it will be to see him. She said, I know. But I want the whole world to see what they did to my boy. And that black and white photo of Emmett Till in the coffin, which you can go home and Google, be warned, it's gruesome. That black and white photo of him in the coffin was published nationally in Jet Magazine, and it launched the civil rights movement in this country. When Rosa Parks was told to go to the back of the bus because she was black, what gave her the courage to stand her ground and do the right thing? She told us in her memoir, I could not get the picture of that boy out of my head. What boy? Emmett. Why do pro-life Christians show imagery like this? Not to beat people up who've had abortions. We've all failed to love our unborn neighbor. You know why we show it? Because I'm convinced, men and women, if pro-life Christians don't lovingly but truthfully open the casket on abortion, our nation is going to continue to tolerate injustice it never has to look at. But as Christians, as we open that casket, we also open the truth of God's word that sinners can be reconciled to their creator because Jesus stood as their substitute and bore in full the judgment of God they deserved. We offer truth and we offer hope. I end with this. We need to repent for not loving with words and deeds. In verses 33 to 37, we get the description of what the Samaritan did. He didn't just feel pity, he took pity. 
There's a Christian leader with a very large following who said that though he personally opposes abortion, he wants it to remain legal. And here's his, his reasoning. He said, I personally oppose abortion, and this guy has a following of millions of evangelicals. I personally oppose it, but I don't want to make it illegal because it's too costly from a societal standpoint to make it illegal. Can I translate that for you? Because protecting the unborn costs us too much, we shouldn't do it. Is that what the Samaritan did here? He gets off his own animal, kneels down beside the guy, pours oil and wine on his wounds, puts the guy back on his own animal, spends costly amounts of money to care for him, and we have a major evangelical leader saying, we're not going to protect the unborn, even though I personally oppose killing them, because it's too much money. That is not what we're seeing here. So what can you do in the two minutes I've got left? What can you do to begin loving your unborn neighbor, not just with words, but with action? Here's something you can do right away. Number one, the Colson Center, just go to colsoncenter.org, has a 21 Days for Life prayer guide that myself and my friend John Stone Street wrote. And in it, you spend two minutes a day reading a short little piece that will equip you to defend your unborn neighbor with people out there who don't hold your view. It will give you ways to tactfully engage them. And then it gives you three prayer points where you take the remaining three minutes and you pray for your unborn neighbor. And it gives you prayer points for each day. So let me ask a question. How many of you have five minutes a day you could devote to, to praying and reading on how you could defend your unborn neighbor. Can I see your hands if you got five minutes for that? ColsonCenter.org, you can pick up that prayer guide. Secondly, there are pregnancy centers here in the Twin Cities area that provide incredible, compassionate care to women in need. We love on them. We care for them. I know I'm involved with many of these centers. You need to support them. They're worthy of your support. A third thing you can do, defend your unborn neighbor when it, time is called on it. Let's say you have a relative, we'll call her Aunt Betty, who visits from Boston at Thanksgiving and she looks at you between bites of turkey and says, now why are you pro-life? Here's your answer. In a minute or less, you'll be able to do this. Aunt Betty, I'm pro-life because the science of embryology says that from the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct living and whole human being. You weren't part of another human being like skin cells on the back of my hand. You were already a whole living member of the human family even though you had yet to grow and mature. And you know what else, Aunt Betty? There's no essential difference between that embryo you were and the adult you are today that would justify killing you back then. Differences of size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then but not now. I think I got that done in under a minute. How many Bible verses did I cite? But did I communicate biblical truth? By the way, some of you are going, I really wish he had written that down for me because I would really like to have that. I have good news for you.
we have a sled card out there in the back. And we're going to auction it off for $10,000 payable to the local crisis pregnancy center. No, we have them. You may pick one up, one per family. In fact, if you tear off the part and leave us your name and address, we'll send you our five-minute pro-lifer. It's a regular newsletter we send out that equips you how to engage on this issue. All you got to do is leave us a work or home address, and we'll send that to you, and you can take the sled card home with you. Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we recognize that none of us live up to the righteous demands of your law. That we are all lawbreakers. We all have failed to love. Even the best among us. But in spite of that, you looked on our sinful condition and you sent Jesus to bear the judgment we each deserve for being rebels against you. And we thank you that because Jesus stood in our place, even if we've participated in abortion, we can have the confidence that our sins are forgiven and we are adopted into God's family because God the Father now judges us on the basis of Jesus' righteousness, not our own. And we thank you that we can have confidence of that. I thank you for this church that is willing to take on tough issues that is willing to say we care more about what the Bible teaches than we do whether people will like us. Thank you for the leadership that Kent and Janet and the team provide here. And I pray you would equip each of us to be your ambassadors on this important issue. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's give him a round of applause.